You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. That's good. Yeah, that's good, right? (laughs) Good morning. It's uh, good to see you all here again on a Sunday Zoom morning. And I'm so glad you guys are joining us here for Lent. Um, Lent is kind of a a season in the church calendar that um, I've really enjoyed coming back to after my initial revolt against liturgy and high church. As I feel like as my faith grows and moves and changes, I come back to a lot of these old traditions that once I found so problematic in... uh, yeah, I'm kind of re-exploring that. I know Aiden and I have um, talked about kind of embracing liturgical church and and um, I love that here at Central, we get to look at and embody all different kinds of ways of being um, in our faith. Um, one of the reasons I really love Lent is this kind of connection to the symbolism of Um, fasting in the desert, which of course is the primary thing that sets Lent aside. Um, And if you're not familiar, it's the the 40 days that happen before Easter. Um, In the Western church, we don't count Sundays because those are the Lord's days and we celebrate the resurrection on Sundays. Um, So it's 40 days plus the Sundays in between. So we get this seven week period of remembering Um, the 40 days that Jesus fasted in the wilderness um, before coming into Jerusalem or before starting in his his very short time as an itinerant preacher changing the world. What I love about that 40 days, though, is it's such a powerful number that connects back in so many ways to the story of the people of Israel in Um, Moses fasting 40 days before receiving the Ten Commandments, Um, the uh, Israelites wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, Um, you know, 40 days of rain in the Great Flood, Um, all these things in these mythologies that make up who we are as a people of faith. And what Lent reminds me is that everything that we do and everything that we are is so interconnected together. Um, You know, this isn't something that we do alone. We join just with the community of faith here at Central, but also with the church um, celebrating and anticipating the Easter season Um, throughout the world and throughout history. And it's this reminder that we're connected to all people and all creation um, together. Um, So I hope that in this this Lenten season, whatever your history is with Lent, um, I hope that um, we can take this as a time to embrace what it means to be a larger version of God's people, you know, including not just those of us here or Christians like us, but all people of faith and all traditions, Christian and not. Um, And so as we start this Sunday with my lovely little one crying in the background, I don't know if you can hear her. (laughs) Um, Would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God. 
as we remember and participate in Lent this year, we're confronted with the challenges of handing over every bit of ourselves that doesn't come from you. Here at Central, we have learned to talk about faith and belief differently. Every time that the actions of our bodies and the thoughts of our mind do harm and oppress other people, we deny our faith. But in every act of kindness, compassion, and sacrifice that we make, we show our faith. God, your prophets called us to change the ways that we worship and to make internal sacrifices instead of external ones, to seek justice and loving kindness, to walk humbly with you. And here at Central, we don't formally give up anything for Lent. But let us give this up that we might stop living in ways that disconnect us from you and from your creation and from your people who are all people. And so lead us and guide us as we celebrate and remember this Lenten season. May we walk with Jesus towards the hill outside of Jerusalem. May we like him take up our crosses and follow. May we spend each moment of our lives living responsibly to you, just as Jesus did. Teach us what it means to embody true faith in every aspect of our lives. Amen. This morning, I wanted to share together in a um, prayer, um, and it's a responsive prayer, a briefly responsive prayer but we haven't done that in several weeks. And it's a powerful way for us to um, remember and embody what it means to be community and hope and faith together. And so having said that, as I share my screen here, would you join me in praying this responsive prayer for God's provision? Um, I'll pray the parts not in bold and we'll respond together with the parts in bold. God, like the Israelites in the wilderness, we too have known your love and experienced your care and provision. You invite us to extend that love to the world around us and to care for others as we've cared for ourselves. And so we bring the needs of our world before you now. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the many who do not have enough enough food to eat or shelter to keep warm, enough employment or money to pay their bills, enough medicine or medical care, enough acceptance or supportive community, enough personal interaction or relational connection. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We also pray for those who have more than enough but who still struggle to find meaning and purpose in life, who indulge in dangerous or self-serving activities to dull their pain or loneliness. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, your grace reaches out to all of us. You call us to live transformationally in this world, working together with one heart and mind. 
strengthen us to live in a manner worthy of the good news that we have received, offering our lives in service of a higher kingdom where the last are first and the first are last, and there's grace enough for all. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen. Well, um, now is the time in our service where we will um, take our communion. As a reminder, we are taking Lent. Uh, Bob um, mentioned a little bit uh, earlier about Lent and how we come from different approaches and different um, practices um, involved in different traditions that uh, come to this season in different ways. Um, I, I, I know some of you are giving things up for Lent. Some of you aren't. Um, so whatever it is you're doing, feel free to uh, participate or not as comfortable. Um, but uh, if you're new to us, we do communion just in the way where you can grab whatever it is you have available in terms of what will represent the wine for you and what will represent the bread. We name that these things are always representative um, and we always have something a little different um, even in the normal times. So um, we extend that approach in this virtual space as well. Today, today I'm gonna um, just read a very short poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I've, um, I've mentioned in one of the last um, couple of weeks or both, um, but poetry especially, um, well, during, during this odd uh, time that we all find ourselves in is a nice reminder of connection and a nice um, uh, reconnection with the arts, which um, many of us are experiencing differently these days, right? So we can't really like go to normal concerts or museums or even movie theaters. So we still find these sort of different creative ways to connect with art, um, which I know is very important to so many of us. Um, so I'm going to read this. Um, it's actually in a collection of poems that I've found that um, are suggested for uh, Lent, and I can share more of them as we go. But it's from a letter to his daughter um, by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, and I'll read it, and then we'll take communion together. Finish each day and be done with it. You have done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities, no doubt, have crept in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow is a new day. Begin it well and serenely, and with too high a spirit to be cumbered with your old nonsense. This day is all that is good and fair. It is too dear with its hopes and invitations to waste a moment on yesterdays. And I feel uh, that does a good framing for how I approach communion. Um, I'll drop it in there. Um, I don't know why that date went with it, but there you go. Probably an imprint from the site. Um, but especially as we remember and we talk about often how communion can be a meal. It's a, a joining together of different folks. Um, sometimes I like to think of it too as in the early days of the church, um, they had a feast, right? A supper, usually at the end of the day, um, where we come together. 
um, and you'd break bread and you'd share wine um, and those things that so many of us have not gone without um, for a really long time in this season. But this reminds me as almost a meditation through communion um, and a meditation at the close of each day to remember and come together and to uh, enjoy the things that bring us peace and happiness and love. Um, so in that vein, I would invite you as Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took the bread um, and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. I invite you to take whatever it is you have today in remembrance. As always, if you'd like to share your creative communion elements in the chat, feel free. Today I have a Dunkaroos cookie that Theo made me. Um, yes, that's apparently a real thing. And um, uh, lavender uh, chamomile tea. And with that in mind, I invite you to take the cup. Um, and after the meal, Jesus took wine and he poured it and he said, drink this in remembrance of the new covenant with me. So I invite you to do the same. And may we take the next faithful step forward as the people of God, remembering to find joy and love today, and then to go into the next. Amen. All right, thanks for that, Max. So the announcements today, uh, Philosophy is Thursday at 6 p.m. via the Zoom link. Uh, atheism, atheism for Lent is currently running through March 31st and it's in place of the gathering. So that's 7 p.m. on Wednesdays. You can still loop in with any information on the Facebook page that Aaron posted. Um, we will have a Good Friday service on April 2nd, more details to come. And um, our next rounds of blood drives will be Thursday, April 8th and Thursday, May 20. And finally, just a reminder, as always, if you need any help with anything, please reach out to leadership and we'll do what we can. And I will pass it on to Aaron now. All right. Thanks, Angie. Can everybody hear me okay? Is that cool? All right, good. Um, so, Prayer requests, words of thanksgiving. Now is the time that we share our joys and concerns. And if you have anything, please unmute. You can raise your voice that way. Or if you're more comfortable, you can always put it in the chat column and I'll do my best to address it from there. But does anybody have anything they want to share today? I was given a prayer request earlier this week from one of our regular attenders. Excuse me. His name's Vit. I think some of you have met him. Uh, he's from uh, the Czech Republic. He's currently living in uh, El Salvador with his wife, uh, working um, as an educator in El Salvador. Anyway, there's, they're facing a really rough time. Her health is, is in poor condition. Um, they are experiencing numerous different challenges living... Thank you. 
pray for her health. Um, we also just ask that they as a family would um, know the comfort and peace um, that they so need and, and that their needs might be met, um, that we and others might be, um, be able to help them uh, with the practicalities of their needs. But we pray for their safety, their health, their well-being. We pray for their future, that they might um, just be able to have the wisdom and the insight they need to know whether to continue to live in El Salvador's name. Amen. Um, anybody else this morning have something they want to bring up? Looks like um, my internet cut out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Vic's, Vic's request is just for their health and well-being in general. Um, they're having a tough time living in El Salvador. Um, might have to move back to the Czech Republic. That's kind of the gist, but yeah. Hopefully my internet will stabilize. <laughs> anyway, um, I don't see anything else in the chat column here. All right. Well, with that, Max, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so uh, for Lent, we've been doing a series of following um, something that our friends over at Enfleshed um, do. They, they develop such inclusive and powerful liturgy that we love using them. Um, check them out. Become a subscriber uh, if you like what we do so, uh, from them. Anyway, so what we've been doing is taking a word each week and meditating on it. The prompt is, and the encouragement is to write. We have a lot of writers in this congregation, even if you wouldn't consider yourself a writer. Um, I would say it's a, it's a great practice to try to just get some of your thoughts down. If you don't want to write, you can just meditate and you can think. Um, um, we've had some folks share some of their responses in the chat, um, which has been really nice to see. Um, so I'll invite you to have, however you so feel, feel so led one of those, um, please explore that. So, um, I'll read our word today and ask some questions around it. I'm actually going to play some um, music in the background and put up a slide so you can kind of just go at your own pace and engage in that way. Um, but uh, we'll do it for just a couple of minutes, the length of the song, and then um, we'll, we'll leave you with that. And you can think about it throughout the day. You can come back to it if you find it um, helpful and powerful. So with that, I will put it up. <clears throat> It's Desiree's birthday, and last time I put up a uh, slide that said untitled presentation, she got really mad. So I called this one titled presentation. Um, well, I'll have to share that with her. <laughs> All right, so here's your prompt. The word for this week is desire.
There you go. Hopefully you at least um, were able to take a minute and breathe and meditate. Um, use that with um, whatever benefit it brings to you. Thanks. Thanks, Max. All right. So everybody can hear me, right? I'm not like uh, in the internet abyss here. Okay, good. <laughs> Hopefully this will uh, stay stable. Today is part two in our Lent series on the sufferings of Christ and what it means to share in his sufferings. This is perhaps the earliest understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. A Christian was someone who shared in the sufferings of God in Christ. That was really the earliest, I think, definition or understanding of it. Even Jesus defines discipleship in Luke's gospel as, you know, he, he says, whoever does not pick up and carry their cross and, and follow me cannot be my disciple, right? But what does that mean? What does it mean to share in the sufferings of God in Christ? This is what we're exploring in this Lenten series. Our text today is the story of Jesus's temptation in the desert. Jesus has just been baptized by John in the Jordan River, and as the story goes, he's driven immediately out into the desert wilderness in order to be tested by Satan. Let's pick up the story there in Matthew chapter 4. It, it reads this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was finished or famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him, end quote. There's multiple layers of meaning to this story. The first and most obvious layer is the fact that this story is a reenactment of the Exodus narrative. Just as Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and then driven out into the desert to be tested, so Israel was baptized by passing through the Red Sea and then immediately driven out into the desert to be tested. Israel was there for 40 years. Jesus was there for 40 days. And just like Jesus, Israel too was tested by hunger, doubt, and idolatry. In fact, Jesus's response to Satan here in Matthew are actually the exact quotes from the book of Deuteronomy where Moses reminds Israel of their trials in the desert. For example, Jesus's words, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is Deuteronomy 8, where Moses reminds the Israelites that God provided food for them in the desert. Jesus' Jesus's words, do not put the Lord your God to the test, is Deuteronomy 6, where Moses reminds them of when they tested God by demanding that he produce water from a rock in the desert. Finally, Jesus' words, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, is Deuteronomy 6 also, where Moses reminds Israel that it was Yahweh 
that delivered them from Egypt and not some foreign deity like Baal, which they worshiped at, at the foot of Mount Sinai in the form of the golden calf. The similarities are so striking that the meaning is obvious. Where Israel failed the desert test, Jesus succeeded. Therefore, Jesus stands symbolically in the Gospels as a fulfillment of the Exodus or a second Moses, a Moses 2.0, if you will, a Moses that is leading his people not into a physical or geographic promised land like the land of Canaan, but a spiritual promised land called the kingdom of God. Jesus embodies the Exodus motif, and this would signal to the Jewish reader who uh, who was the original audience of Matthew's gospel, it would signal to that reader that Jesus was someone important to pay attention to. Stories that mimicked each other was a common way back then for people to assign meaning to their stories and beliefs. If your religion's stories mimicked other well-known and well-established stories and respected stories, your stories were given the same significance and authority. We see this with the Genesis creation account right, and how it closely parallels earlier creation myths from the ancient Near East, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Enuma Elish, which is a Babylonian account, uh, the tale of Enki and Ninhursag. For the same reason, it was very important for the gospel writers to locate Jesus within the Exodus trope in order to give him the authority and the meaning they believed he needed or was justified. We saw another example of this last week, when we looked at the story of Jesus's exile in Egypt as, as a baby and how the text says in Matthew, this was done in order to, to fulfill uh, the words of the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Again, connecting Jesus to the Exodus, to the Exodus story as a way of saying, hey, listen to this guy. <laughs> He's really important. So that's the first layer of meaning here with Jesus's desert temptation, but not, but not the one I really want to focus on today. Uh, after all, we're talking about, you know, Jesus's sufferings, the sufferings of Christ, and what they meant to early Christians and what they can still mean for us today. The temptation of Christ, I think, has always functioned on a deeper level as a very humanizing aspect of Jesus's story, as every occurrence of his suffering in the Gospels really does function this way. It's intended to humanize him. The idea is he could only suffer and be tempted because he was a human being. The tempted and tried Christ is a very human Christ, and thereby one we, we can all identify with, right? That's the deeper underlying meaning of this story to me. And with that in mind, I want to suggest an alternative reading of this story today, one that I think may better capture the story's meaning better than the version we find in Matthew. This version I'm about to share, from, share with you comes from a lost gospel recently discovered in some caves near the Dead Sea. You've heard of the Gospel of Thomas before. Well, this one comes from the Gospel of Aaron. Again, a recently discovered lost gospel. It reads, after Jesus was baptized by John, he stood on the banks of the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit and confident that he could begin the work that God had called him to. But soon his thoughts turned to Jerusalem, and all the oppression and the threats that he knew he would face there. It didn't take long for the joy of his baptism to give way to anxiety and indecision. And so he ventured out into the desert wilderness alone to fast and to pray and to decide what he should do. 
For days he ate and drank nothing. Eventually he is overcome by hunger and thirst in the hot desert sun, and he faints. While unconscious, he has a terrifying vision of a demon that interrogates him with all kinds of questions that test his faith and cunning arguments that make him doubt himself and doubt even God. Eventually, a Samaritan finds Jesus unconscious, barely alive, and lying in a, in a canyon. The Samaritan puts him on his donkey and takes him to an inn and pays the innkeeper a considerable sum to nurse him back to health. Days later, when Jesus awakens, he's astonished that he's survived his ordeal, and he's deeply moved when the innkeeper tells him that a Samaritan of all people saved his life. He takes all this as a sign that God is with him and that he should start his ministry. He suddenly feels well enough to leave, and so he thanks the innkeeper for his hospitality and sets out for Galilee. As the innkeeper watches him walk away down the road, he looks upon him with pity and thinks to himself, what a sad man. What problems could drive someone out into the desert to solve them and nearly make them kill themselves? What demons must he be haunted by? The reason why I like that version of the story the most, even though it's from a questionable source, is because it suggests that the demons that haunted Jesus in the desert were really of his own making. Who knows? Maybe he was suffering from heat stroke and hallucinated that encounter with the devil. But regardless, the demons that haunted him were very real. The demons that haunted Jesus in the desert were very real. And whichever version of the story you like more, the, question, the questions and the temptations the devil posed to him had to be questions and temptations he was already struggling with. Because you see, that's the way... Um, you, that's the way temptation works. You can't be tempted by things you don't actually desire. That's not how temptation works. You're only tempted by what you desire, and you only question what you doubt. You're only tempted by what you desire, and you only question what you already doubt. Satan was only able to tempt Jesus with wealth and fame and power because Jesus actually desired those things. Satan was only able to tempt Jesus to test God's power because Jesus actually questioned God's power. So Satan was merely playing on Jesus's unconscious questions and doubts and desires and anxieties. The same questions, doubts, desires, and anxieties we all have as human beings. That's what the desert trial, I think, really revealed. It revealed a very human Christ, one that is haunted by demons just like the rest of us. Our demons may be our doubts about God, our fear of death, our demons may be our fear that we'll never achieve our potential or find happiness and fulfillment. Or maybe our demons are our deep desire for power, wealth, recognition, and fame. We are all haunted by certain demons that are really of our own making. And I think Jesus was too, because this is part of what it means to be human. The temptation of Christ is about the humanity of Christ. Only a very human Jesus could have been tempted like he was. Only a very human Christ could have doubted like he did. But this is a very strange idea, right? This idea of Jesus struggling with questions and doubts. This idea of God doubting God. This idea of God questioning God. But this is the true radical core of Christianity and that of the suffering Christ. The message is we are closest to Christ when our faith is tested and tried 
as his was. We are closest to Christ when we doubt as he did. We are closest to Christ when we feel most haunted by our demons as he was. Now, what can this mean? Well, on one level, I think it means that doubt is not the antithesis of faith, but actually part of the life of faith. And that's a point worth making and something we can discuss. But on a deeper level, I think stories like this one function as the deepest possible affirmation of our humanity in all of its difficulties and frailties, anxieties, and demons, as it were. It's as if God is saying through these stories, you're enough. You don't need me to save you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. You are enough. Trust in yourselves. That's what I think these stories of the suffering Christ are really saying to us. The message is not so much trust in God, but that God trusted us just as God trusted Christ. The message is not so much trust in God, but that God trusts us just as God trusted Christ. Or perhaps a better way of putting it is to say that the message is to put our trust in Christ, so to speak, because the trust in Christ is the, is the trust in ourselves. For Christ became one of us to show us that being human is divine. In all of its difficulties and frailties, in all of its hauntedness, being human is divine. We don't have to fear our demons and in that way be ruled by them. We can make peace with them and thereby be delivered from them. Because God himself in Christ is haunted by demons too and yet overcame them. This to me is what? It means for us to share in Christ's sufferings, to share in the sufferings of the tempted and haunted Christ, is to believe that being human is enough. Being human is divine. Being here now is divine. Just living and loving is divine, as Christ did. I find the message of the suffering Christ a deeply humanist and existential message that says we don't have to be more than we already are to be at peace. We don't have to be more than we already are to be at peace. For Christ is with us, and we are with Christ. So that's my take on that story today. Uh, hopefully you like that. Uh, as always, I want to uh, open it up for some conversation, some reactions. Um, does anybody have any, uh, any any questions about or comments about that, uh, that take, a humanist take, an existential take, as it were. But yeah, any questions or comments on that today? Hopefully I didn't break up again. Um, I have Angie and I watched this movie Minari recently. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's like up for some awards. There's a character in this film who I think every Sunday he literally uh, carries a cross and drags it down the street as his way to feel like he's connecting with Christ. And uh, it's funny when you watch it, but I feel like there's a lot of people who they feel like they need to do that. Uh, to have that connection. So this isn't maybe relating exactly <laughs> with your sermon, but for some reason, uh, 
I don't know, it just came to came to light. And uh, you did start off with, you know, we have to pick up our cross and carry our cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it's such a literal interpretation of that. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think we would all agree like, well, he didn't really need to do that. He doesn't right. need to take an accurate size, you know, an actual size cross that one would be crucified on and drag it down the street for several miles. Um, he can just be himself and in in the the struggles that he has in his life just living day to day is is enough uh, yeah yeah so i don't know i just thought of that it was it's a good movie just minari. Min minar minari yeah yeah it's not about it's not about christianity or anything this is just sort of like a side character in the in the film but it's um but yeah it was it's was, it was good I recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all, uh, people have always found unique and different ways of trying to identify with Christ and his sufferings. You know, maybe, maybe this kind of existential and humanist take that I've put forward is sort of my way of walking down the street with a cross on my back. But it's very personal, perhaps, you know, and maybe, uh, you know, it's, it's not a way that works for everybody, but it works for me, you know, and maybe that's the point. We all have to find ways of, um, you know, identifying with Christ and his sufferings, and perhaps those are unique and idiosyncratic to our own, our own, our own lives, you know, I don't know, it's a good, it's an interesting point, Dan. Um, yeah, other, other thoughts today? Yeah, I'd like to chime in, it's, it's Isabel, how are you? Good, good, how are you? I'm good, I just, um, you know, was in the process of moving over the last couple of weeks, I'm still settling in, so it's a bit much right now, I'm kind of on overload, but what I thought about when you shared the story today is I think for me, the way this manifests is anytime I embrace change, like when I want to do something different, um, some, just like even this move or starting the doctoral program or whatever. Um, I think when you like change the, try to do something that shakes up the status quo in any way, <laughs> it brings about suffering mm, yeah. <laughs> because you're, you're kind of going against your habits and things that you're used to. And, um, and it, it forces you also to engage with others, maybe not by people you don't know, you're trying to build bridges and behave hopefully in the way that, you know, you see example in the book by Christ. But, but I think for me, the way it manifests is anytime that I step outside of my comfort zone and try to do something different, yeah, that's where I feel it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Isabel. So I'm curious what you guys and girls uh, feel about um, this idea of a Christ who, you know, struggled with questions and doubt, a very human Christ that could be tempted, that, you know, obviously, you know, struggled with desires of wealth and fame and recognition. Otherwise, he couldn't have been tempted with it. Right. And, uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what you think about that, that depiction. Uh, I find it to be a pretty radical idea that, you know, Christ was human in those ways. And I, I think it speaks to, uh, speak, speaks to us. Um, but that's me. I'm, I'm curious. Um, do you guys identify with this Christ that, that doubted and struggled with questions and temptations? Um, what does that mean to you? um can i can i say something yeah, john please yeah yeah i i really appreciated that the gospel bit from the gospel of aaron right is that 
And um, it's, it's a, it was it's a lost gospel, I'm, but I'm confident that it's going to make it into the canon. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I just really appreciate it. I like that in, you know, there at the end of the story here, he is, you know, in this place where, you know, he actually came out like, like in his mind, you know, and in his, in his experience, you know, there was a victory involved in him having to have gone through what he did right to where he actually now has enough confidence to go through with his with his mission and then here's this this innkeeper who's just like oh poor sad guy and to me that was like totally that that was like the exile um that i heard in that story was just like this idea of like when we come through um and we're just feeling, you know, that we have accomplished something. Um, and for him, it was, you know, like uh, the first, you know, the first being last kind of thing. Um, that there's just like people around us who are just like, oh, poor sad man. Um, but that that that's what really like stuck out to me in the story. Thanks, Johnny. I'm really glad you got that because I I I feel like I identify with the haunted Christ in in the desert. You know, this idea of you know, the, the Christ is haunted by demons of questions and doubts, right? And that in a way, he overcomes them, right? But they do, the fact that he struggled with them in the first place kind of says that they were always with him. You know, even on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's kind of proof that the demons that haunted him in the desert right after his baptism were still haunting him at the end of his life. And isn't that, isn't that so human? And isn't that us? And um, I find that to be a beautiful part of this story and a very, very hopeful one. I, I know that's dark to some people, dark in a bad way. I think it's dark in a good way. <laughs> I, think, I think the darkness of Christ is what humanizes him and what makes him, I think, a message of hope and kind of um, serenity and, and peace for us. That's how I've come to read it. Um, and I think in some ways we we fail or not fail, that's the wrong word, but I think because we've been raised in this Christian culture and a lot of us grew up in the church, like the, the cross and the, and the tempted Christ and the sufferings of Christ have been so romanticized that we've lost touch with their incendiary meaning and how, you know, shocking this idea of, you know, the suffering God, the weak and powerless, tempted, doubting, suffering God is, and how I think that was intended even originally to be a point of you know, contact in the way that we as human beings in our suffering can relate to God and him to us. I, I, I don't think that we really have a really good handle on that. Um, and it's something I've, I've tried to help, you know, recover and help us recover. But anyway, uh, other thoughts and reactions, uh, you know, does, does the suffering Christ relate to you? Does the doubting Christ relate to you? Um, how does that work for you? Um, for me, it's a little bit difficult. And uh, I'll relate it to something that um, happened to me in college. So I took a course called the History of Sequential Art, which is like illustration and basically comic books. Um, and so we talked about Superman. And for me, um, Christ is a little bit like Superman. So in the story of Superman, you're supposed to believe that this guy can do anything, but he chooses to be nerdy Clark Kent. <laughs> So it's like he's vulnerable and he has problems, but you know he can type faster than anybody. He can think faster than anybody. He can go anywhere and capture any story, but supposedly he has work problems, right? 
So he could actually be the greatest athlete the planet has ever seen. So like what, you know what I'm saying? Like his, whether he's got money problems or women problems, they're kind of, they're not believable. Mm-hmm. Read the story for what it is. Cause he's an alien that can do anything he wants. He's a God, right? And so I think in traditional, at least my experience of traditional Christianity, there's this problem with the presentation of Christ as a superhero and a super person. And it's actually not relatable at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think people, well, I've, I've heard this story many times in many sermons and read about it and, you know, every other version of things that he said when he was, you know, young and he lectured everybody about what God was thinking and, you know, him raging out in the temple is justified because he's God and that's his house, all that kind of stuff. So um, I don't know if other people relate to it, but to me, um, Christ hasn't actually been presented as human yeah. in terms of Yeah, I agree. And I, I think the way you, in order for Christ to really be human, in my opinion, you cannot make him into Superman the way that you described. He can't because it's not, it doesn't work that way. You know, this idea of, you know, a suffering Christ, uh, as Caputo puts it, you know, I believe Christ was actually nailed on the cross. I believe he was really nailed there, that he couldn't come down. If, if we believe that he could have, you know, you know, supernaturally pushed the nails from his hands and feet and floated down from the cross and healed his wounds on the spot and shattered the cross into a million pieces and then, you know, gave those nasty Romans what they deserved, right? If, if we believe it was just, you know, uh, he was hiding his true power so that his human side could really suffer. Well, that's not really suffering. That's not really, that's not, that, that's not, that, that's, that's just, um, you know, a show. It's theater. That's, that's just theater. And, and I think the, the Christ that so many of us grew up with, you know, was this kind of theatrical, you know, you know, this kind of inhuman kind of uh, Christ. And um, but that's that's terrifying to think that Christ was actually God in some way, but was weak and powerless and actually um, suffered. I think we don't like that initially because that means that maybe we're alone and and, and God is not all powerful and um you know we don't like that that's that's scary right but in my opinion that that is the only way in which christ i think helps us and sets us free and offers us redemption and salvation in the sense that through kind of realizing that god in christ is weak and powerless but is somehow with us in our suffering therefore showing us that we can actually find the courage to be and that we don't need uh, and a, a deliverer, an all-powerful redeemer to step in and save the day, that we can actually become, you know, Christ in the world, that, that we can, you know, in essence, become the hands and feet of God and, and, and answer each other's prayers, that that's what it's calling us to, is to answer each other's prayers and be the hands and feet of God in the world and stop looking for someone to save us when we should be working to save ourselves. That, for me, that's the powerful message of Christ um, and the gospel, but that's, that's pretty radical stuff, right? And it's not atheism, but it, there's something kind of atheistic about it, you know, as a way of calling us into being, as a way of calling us to responsibility and stop trying to escape and use, using God and, and, you know, invoking power to 
avoid our responsibilities in the world um, and to each other. So for me, only a suffering Christ, only a weak and powerless Christ is really relatable and really powerful and redemptive. I, I, does that make sense? Does, I mean, JP, I'm curious what you think about that. Is that also kind of where you're at or am I just, is that, is that just me? I hear it intellectually. Yeah. And I agree with you. I'm just saying, you know, we don't rub mud on people's eyes and then they're, they're healed, right? We don't have 2000 years of stories and songs sung about us, right? I took Bible classes where they said there were Christophanies throughout the Old Testament mm -hmm. and that he's always there, right? So, you know, and there isn't that much written about, at least in our uh, Bible, about child, like Christ as a little kid. So you don't really get much of that. You don't, you know, did, did he ever do anything wrong? Because he's supposedly sinless. Did he get in trouble? Like you don't have any of that. It's just, you know, one story where obviously he's in the temple schooling everybody and then boom, he's 30 and he starts doing his thing. So I'm just saying like, when you, when you go deep into it, everybody else in the Bible is far more relatable in my opinion. Mm they're actual human beings, right? Even, I mean, I don't know who's the closest to Christ as far as like biblical superheroes, but you know, you can find, you know, Abraham's mistakes, right? You can see kind of Paul's mistake. You can see David, King David, clearly, right? Solomon, clearly, all the other Bibles, heroes and you can see it, but Christ, you're that's why he can save because he didn't do anything wrong. So it's not intellectually, I get it. I just don't think that that's actually that, that the experience or that it's, it's actually yeah. relatable. Yeah. You know? And you're raising a, you know, honestly, this is what Christians have been, have been struggling with uh, for centuries. And, you know, really what I'm articulating here is a very mystical understanding of Christ's sufferings in some way, you know, and uh, in some ways, I think the early, you find it echoed in the writings of the early church and Paul, um, this idea of the suffering Christ. And, you know, especially in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, you know, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, emptied himself, taking on the form of servant and became obedient to the point of death, you know, even death on a cross, right? Uh, you find these ideas of, you know, uh, Christ being weak and powerless and, and, you know, fully human, even in some of Paul's writings, but it's always been a struggle for the church, I think, to really see him that way. Um, but yeah, JP, I, I agree with you. Those are the, that's the struggle. That's the rub. Um, other thoughts. I'm seeing some stuff in the chat column here. That's interesting. Um, can I jump in real quick? Yeah, Scott, please. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I, I like Caputo and the idea of weak theology and stuff, but I also agree that Jesus in the, the Gospels are terrible at presenting the human side of Jesus other than simply saying that he was human. But there is the Gethsemane, there is the scene in Gethsemane, and that's the one moment we get of a glimpse of his internal life when he actually, we see him not want it. He doesn't want the burden of being Christ, of being the Messiah. Um, he doesn't want the cross, and he asks for it to be taken away. And then in that quickly in that moment, he then makes a decision and gives and says, you know, your will be done. And to me, that's always, I've always gone back to that because it's, a, it's, um, it's sort of, I like how it plays into Caputo and um, Rollins and the weak theology idea of that. It's actually like, it's on us. It's our decision. 
Yeah. Um, Cause in that moment, I, I feel like that's one of the few moments that actually reveals Jesus is human is you realize like he didn't want it. He decided he made the choice in that moment to, to go forward. Um, and, and that's the one I always kind of come back to in that. We're going to get to that story in this series. Um, I'm kind of working chronologically through the gospels, you know, if the gospels are actually chronological. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're going to get to that. That's a great moment in Christ's story. Um, yeah, and Bonhoeffer, whom Caputo and Rollins draw on, Bonhoeffer, uh, in his letters and papers in prison, mused on the Gethsemane scene and, and said, you know, Jesus, God in Jesus is begging his disciples to stay awake and to pray for him, <laughs> you know, in the hour of his need. And this is, uh, for Bonhoeffer, what Christianity actually is. He says, humanity is summoned to share in God's sufferings at the hands of a godless world, because he's facing right? His, his, his eminent arrest and crucifixion, right? This idea that, that God is summoning humanity to share in his sufferings at the hands of a godless world. That is Christianity, Bonhoeffer, and then to Caputo and Rollins as well. Um, but again, this, this is the story. This is our story as Christians. And, and, and I think it's always been seen even originally as deeply kind of radical and kind of offensive and kind of out there and sort of you know, it freaked people out. Well, Jews and Greeks alike, Paul says, thought that this whole message was nonsense and foolishness and weakness. So, I mean, it's it's not fair to say that we've just come along and radicalized. It's always been radical um, in a way of, you know, I think humanizing God. But anyway, we're just we're just articulating it in our way today. But Scott, yeah, that's a really good reflection. Other other thoughts? I think that's a good point because. I think we've been taught to look for Christ's divinity in all the stories. Like we've been trained to read the stories that way. And I think we, we have this dualism of like divinity versus humanity and it can't, yeah. it's gotta be one or the other. And so when we read the wilderness story, at least for most of my life until now, and, and Aaron's telling of it, you know, or at least in the last few years, you owe, we, I was taught to look for his divinity. See, he must be the son of God because he overcame temptation. It's divinity. That's what the story is about. And we were not taught to allow his humanity to come to surface in that. And I, and I, I'm cur- I just think if we did an exercise and we went back and started to look closely at the life of Christ, we will start to see his humanity rise in ways that are so unexpected that we didn't see and that the, the authors of the Gospels probably didn't know they were doing. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, I just think right off the top of my head, I think of like when he didn't want, when his mother asked him, to turn water into wine. He's like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, that's not, this is not my time. I don't, like, I don't want to. And, and, and then you start to peel back the layers of his fatigue, his probably frustration with people that he constantly had to leave and go be by himself. Um, and, and, and then of course, Gethsemane and, and the cross. And it's a provocative thought that maybe in the humanity is the divinity. You cannot separate the two. It is I don't think we should. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then I just thought it's Easter season, so it's like, uh, or Lent, and I, I thought of um, the last temptation of Christ and how yes. provocative that was because it focused on his humanity and people hated that movie or like protested it because of it. But I think it's worth grappling with. Like, I think it's a good point like to go through that and to, and to see him as a human being um, in order to understand his divinity as well. Yeah, Nathan, 
Real good. And I think it's important for us always to remember that the Gospels were written specifically to help the poor and the marginalized, specifically kind of these Jewish peasants, um, understand kind of God or, or relate to this story of Jesus, the Messiah, the crucified peasant Messiah. I, I think we have to remember that the Gospels were written to poor and marginalized people to tell them that God, in fact, stands in solidarity with you not with the wealthy and the elite and the powerful and the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes. God is with you, the poor and the powerless. And, and that is in, inherently a, a humanized, a, a kind of humanist kind of message, a way of humanizing God in a way that God was never really humanized before. So even, even you know, I, I think it's important to understand the context of the gospels written to that audience to, to say that God stands in solidarity with you, the weak and the powerless, those who are essentially God, deemed godless, God-forsaken ones, God is with you. Um, so that's radical. That's, that's deeply radical. Um, that's kind of what we're exploring here. But yeah, thanks, Nathan. Other thoughts today? Hey, to Nathan's, uh, to Nathan's point, um, studying some of the history of the gospels, especially like some of the earlier gospels, there wasn't as much of an emphasis on Jesus's divinity, but obviously by the time you got to John, yes, you know, it was full on like, you know, Christ is Lord and that sort of thing. And, and John's gospel was the last one written around right. nine, about, about 60 years after Christ. Right. But it, it is, it is the one where it quite clearly says, no, this guy was totally divine. He's right. God, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 316 and all that, all that good stuff. And I just echo with Scott about Gethsemane, like, that and obviously, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, you know, why have you forsaken me? Like, obviously, two of, you know, arguably some of the most human sides of, of Christ. And I just wanted to uh, make mention that, Aaron, you had sent out, I think, an article maybe a few years ago or when we were talking about Easter. And this is, I think, to Nathan, to your point, just an exercise of thinking about Christ in this way. Aaron, you had sent out an article around Easter. Um, where it was looking at Jesus, just tossing out the idea, like, say he was human, you know, what does that kind of gesture of, of crucifixion and laying your life down for your friends, you know, for your, for, for those who are lesser that, um, what does that mean, you know, when you make that kind of ultimate sacrifice of love, you know, for one another. And I thought it was just a really, I don't know if you still have that article somewhere. I thought it was a really interesting um, thought experiment, at least, you know, to, to, do you know what I'm, I'm talking about? I'm trying to find it in my head. Um, who is the, the author? Do you remember? I'm not quite sure. I'll, I'll do some research and I'll see if I can, see if I can please, find please it. Please do. And if you yeah. find it, I'll, I'll post it in the church, uh, uh, in the church web, uh, Facebook sites. Cause obviously it's definitely a, a very, um, progressive way of thinking about it, but I thought at very least as a thought experiment, it was pretty interesting to just think yeah. about, you know, what, what it would look like if Christ was a human, you know, sacrificing himself for his friends and, and what that looks like in terms of love and the ultimate sacrifice, you know, for another. Anyway, that's it. Good. Other thoughts today?
Well, good stuff, everybody. Thanks for being here. I guess that's a good place for us to uh, for us to park it, and uh, we'll continue our discussion on the suffering Christ and the stories in the Gospels that most exemplify that next week. Um, I think next week I'm going to talk about um, kind of the persecuted Christ, uh, the Christ of the Gospels that was, you know, basically attacked. Uh, his character was attacked by the by those in authority. Right? He was. Um, you know, constantly being, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, berated by by the religious authorities and in opposition with them. And that was part of his suffering is to be seen as this kind of heretical figure that was challenging the status quo and leading people astray. Uh, that was certainly the way that the religious authorities perceived him. So we'll talk about that uh, next week. And there's a lot there that we can relate to being uh, progressive Christians, uh, maybe demonized by our evangelical orthodox friends and family, but um, such are the sufferings of Christ. But thanks for being here. And um, if you want to hang out and chat, please do so. Otherwise, go in peace, my friends. Mm.